Welcome to Parcast Presents the Best of 2019. We have for you the most requested episodes of The Dark Side of from this year. For more great episodes you may have missed, subscribe to The Dark Side of. Listen free on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. The music drifted between the patrons of the juke and caressed their arms and legs until everyone in the hall stopped their gyrations. They fell into a trance and focused solely on the man playing the guitar. The night was humid, and the crowded room only helped to choke the air. Sweat beaded on their foreheads and trickled down their arms. But it was not the sweat of a day's labor, long forgotten by now. It was the sweat of joy. They were lucky to glimpse the nomadic Robert Johnson as he serenaded them with a perfect balance of somber reflection and energetic riffs. His fingers danced across the guitar. If the patrons closed their eyes, they would swear a full band was the evening's entertainment. But when they opened them again, they only saw the five-foot-eight Johnson with his lean frame and distant eyes. His voice screeched, and shrank, pulling at something between them that they didn't know was there. Pulling until the thing came loose, like a rotten tooth long aching in the back of their mouths. And suddenly, the pain was gone. The patron's eyes glazed over. Tears navigated through the sweat dotted on their cheeks. Wives reached out and placed their hands on their husbands' arms and the husband's shoulders relaxed and dropped from their hunched position, releasing the weight of sorrow that they had been carrying for months. And just like that, it was over. Johnson thanked his audience, and they took to socializing again. Johnson's most recent love interest, a woman named Beatrice, pushed her way through the crowd. But when she reached him, she dared not embrace him or betray herself, lest the wrong pair of eyes report the offense to her husband. Instead, she handed him a bottle of whiskey, a bottle that, unbeknownst to them both, had been prepared by the estranged cuckold. So Robert uncapped and drank deep. His love of whiskey was near as great as his love of women. The next evening, the crowd came to the plantation where he was staying to ask him to play. But he said he wasn't feeling right. Three days later, he died. They put him in a cheap wooden coffin and buried him under a large pecan tree. He was only 27. He had only recorded 29 songs, but his legacy and the legend of his curse would live on forever. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. Our episode today is unique in that we are switching our point of focus. 
For the past eight weeks, we dove into the dark side of Hollywood. But for our next 10 episodes, we are going to change gears and look into the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use to the exploitative creation of pop stars to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. Today, we're beginning our discussion by looking at the 27 Club, the name given to a group of ultra-talented musicians who unfortunately met an early demise at the age of 27. By looking at this specific group, we aim to give a general overview of the hazardous side of the musical world. Then, over our 10-episode series, we will continue this exploration, uncovering some of the most fascinating and menacing aspects of the music business. We'll look at the tyrannical and lethal rule of Suge Knight over Death Row Records, Elvis Presley's twisted obsession with death, and the physical and emotional abuse inflicted on today's K-pop stars. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. When Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, died on July 3, 1971, it marked the fourth time in exactly two years that a 27-year-old musical superstar died suddenly. When Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse were added to the list in 1994 and 2011, the world began to consider if this was more than just a coincidence. The group was coined the 27 Club, a colloquial, albeit morbid term to classify the number of celebrities, particularly musicians, that died at the age of 27. The idea of the 27 Club received enough attention that a number of statisticians looked into the mystery. The results, while not necessarily exciting, were unsurprising. 27-year-old musicians die slightly more than 26-year-olds and slightly less than 28-year-olds. Meaning that about as many musicians die at 27 as you would expect. And yet, stigma of the club persisted. The primary members were too big and too famous, their experiences too similar to avoid the temptation of grouping them together. Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, and Robert Johnson are the primary members mentioned. Every one of these musicians was in the prime of their career, pioneers of their industry with enough artistic moxie that it would be no hyperbole to call each and every one a genius. Their deaths were tragic. It was as though the world was robbed of performers that had just started to hit the pinnacle of their creative abilities. There's no denying that each of them at the time of their death had incredibly destructive tendencies. But if we pull back the curtain of their lives, we revealed that their more detrimental qualities were exacerbated by the volatile and exploitative nature of the music industry as a whole. While there has been no correlation between the age of 27 and increased risk of death, there is a correlation between the music industry 
and early death in general. Dr. Diana T. Kenny, a professor of psychology and music at the University of Sydney, found that between 1950 and 2014, popular musicians' average lifespan was up to 25 years shorter than the general U.S. population. On top of this, she found that deaths from accidents, suicides, and homicides were several times more likely for popular musicians. This opens up an uncomfortable reality. The music industry is not only toxic and psychologically taxing, it is also deadly. This is why the 27 Club stands out as a cultural phenomenon, because it highlights the dangers of the music industry, the destructive forces and explosive personalities, the tempestuous experiment of mixing the most creative and insightful minds our society has to offer with the cold indifference of industry and the emotional taxation of fame and publicity. This forces us to ask a very uncomfortable but fascinating question. Is the music industry a monster that creates incredibly destructive people? Or are the most destructive personalities the most attracted to the prospect of creating music? To explore this question, we're going to unpack the main seven members of the 27 Club. But we are going to do so in a unique way. Because each of these artists could have several podcasts about them, we've chosen to split our exploration into seven parts in the life of a young musician. These are childhood, adolescence, the formation of a band, love, burnout, death, and afterlife. While all seven of these members faced difficulties in each facet of their existence, by focusing on specific periods for each musician, we aim to show that their tragedies are somewhat interchangeable and demonstrate the vice-like grip music can have over a person for their entire lives. Our first part is childhood. And in many ways, Jim Morrison was always a child, albeit a very intellectual one. While Morrison did not particularly have the worst upbringing of the main 27 Club members, it certainly was one of the most influential on his later years. Nothing exemplified this more than an incident in August of 1966 at the legendary Los Angeles nightclub Whiskey A Go-Go. Only a year removed from college, a 22-year-old Morrison and his newly formed band called The Doors had landed a gig as the house band. This break carried them for several months, an unusual but fortunate start for such a fresh group. On August 21st, The Doors went through their usual routine, playing their elongated psychedelic version of jazz rock, while Morrison spouted out his poetic spoken word jargon. Then they played The End, a song that lays out the end of some sort of saga in Morrison's life, that is, until the last verse. Morrison, in front of a filled room that included the club's owner, Phil Tanzini, sing-shouted into the microphone that he wanted to murder his father and have sex with his mother. The stunned crowd reeled and fell silent. They looked at each other, wondering how to react, wondering what to do with such intimate information. Phil Tanzini fired the doors on the spot. When pressed on the lyrics of the end in a 1969 interview with Rolling Stone, 
Morrison at first explained it as just a recreation of the Oedipus myth, the tragic Greek hero who accidentally murders his father and marries his mother. But then, Morrison strangely backtracked and made the sentiment more personal. He said, I could see how it could be goodbye to a kind of childhood. I really don't know. I think it's sufficiently complex and universal in its imagery that it could be almost anything you want it to be. If anything, this sounds like inner turmoil that even Morrison didn't understand. But where did this turmoil come from? Morrison's father, George, was a rear admiral in the Navy, and as a rigid military man, the family moved often. He was also rarely home, leaving Jim as the oldest child to act as a father figure in the household. This created a strange dynamic between Jim and his mother Clara, who often fought more like spouses than mother and son. But Jim would also act out in incredibly petty and childish ways. As an early teen in the mid-1950s, he had a penchant for toilet humor and an obnoxious addiction to pranks. He would shoot spitballs at strangers, pick his nose in public, and make lewd remarks. This horrified his polite military parents. One childhood friend asserts that Jim's father often beat him with a belt for his insurrections. This only hardened Jim to punishment, and he started to turn his torturous efforts inward. He started pinning his brother Andy down for prolonged periods, threatening to spit in his mouth. He violently threw rocks at his siblings. One time, in response to his mother's attempts at punishment, Jim put her in a headlock and held her there until she started to laugh. This highlights the fact that Morrison infrequently faced consequences. With his charisma, he was able to navigate annoyance in favor of laughter. While it was relatively harmless, the lack of reprimand in his childhood laid the foundation for Morrison's destructive behavior after he had achieved stardom. One thing is apparent, though. Jim felt a great deal of resentment toward both parents. In 1965, as the Doors were first becoming a band, a 21-year-old Morrison told the rest of the members that he was an orphan, a lie he maintained for years. And when his father called in 1966 to tell his son that a music career was a giant mistake, Jim decided it was the last time he would ever talk to his father. This decision on the surface might seem like the brave stance of a creative pioneer with a vision of the future, damned be the naysayers who got in his way. But in reality, it points to a problem that Morrison and every other member of the 27 Club suffered from, that of detachment. Morrison was a lonely person, a boy who grew up with an IQ of 149 and read Nietzsche in his parents' basement whose rebellious instinct was brushed aside repeatedly and called hopeless. His carefree attitude led him to try LSD and other drugs. It was, at first, a doorway to his creativity, but soon led to full-blown addiction and alcoholism. Which was a recurring problem with the music industry, particularly through the 60s and 70s. All sorts of creative, open individuals were flocking to the drug scene for creative inspiration, with little understanding of the risks or of the fact that the sensitive, lonely side of great musicians fundamentally made them more vulnerable to drug addiction. 
Morrison's substance abuse was exacerbated by his childhood belief that consequences were not something that applied to him. As the Doors gained notoriety in the late 1960s, Morrison repeatedly displayed abrasive and offensive behaviors. At a 1967 concert in New Haven, Connecticut, police officers caught a drunken Morrison sleeping with a groupie backstage. Not recognizing the singer, the police confronted him, but Morrison only responded with aggression. The altercation turned physical. When the Doors manager finally arrived, he clarified who Morrison was. Police could still arrest him, but they could do it after the show. Morrison brushed himself off and haughtily went up to the stage, where he told the entire crowd about the confrontation. He started swearing at the police, trying to get the crowd to riot. The plan failed. The lights of the venue came up. The officers put Morrison in cuffs and dragged him away, officially putting him in the history books as the first rock star to be arrested on stage. But Morrison's antics weren't just aggressive. They were also incredibly immature. At a late 60s party in Hidden Hills, Los Angeles, producer Paul Rothschild introduced Morrison to the equally famous Janis Joplin. The two hit it off. That is, until Morrison got drunk and started his vulgar, childish act. Joplin rejected him. Again and again. But the inebriated singer was persistent and pestered her until she tried to get away. She left the house with Morrison in tow and got in her car. He begged her to stay a little while longer. But when she said no once more, he reached out and grabbed her by the hair, attempting to remove her from the car by force. Joplin didn't hesitate. She grabbed the bottle of Southern Comfort she was carrying and bashed it over Morrison's head, knocking him out cold. As time went on, Morrison's drunken tirades only worsened. He started to estrange himself not just from his friends, but from his bandmates as well. Tired of his destructive and erratic behavior, the Doors separated ties with Morrison in October of 1970. He eventually migrated to Paris with his girlfriend, Pamela Corson. On July 3, 1971, Corson found the 27-year-old Morrison dead in his bathtub. There was no coronary report, and his passing was ruled as heart failure due to excessive drug and alcohol use. Morrison left behind a peculiar legacy. He was revered as a songwriter and poet, but remembered for his abrasive childish antics. Morrison was never forced to mature at home and was equally prevented from doing so in a music industry that supported and often encouraged his behavior. That is, as long as the profits were coming in. This was the dark reality of all the musicians we are discussing today. Because of their incredibly rapid success, they were never fully capable of dealing with the things that haunted them the most. Demons that would lead them all to an early grave. Coming up, we'll continue our exploration of the tragic lives of the 27 Club. Now back to the story. Jim Morrison's troubles and eventual death represented the first of seven parts in a musician's life, childhood. 
His unchecked childlike nature highlighted the truth that ignored behaviors, even if seemingly innocent at first, can fester and come to dominate a person's psyche. Our second step, adolescence, is a dark time for most everyone, but especially dark when incredibly sensitive people are unable to reconcile with the pain it brought them. Which brings us to Janis Joplin, a woman whose loneliness and isolation thoroughly and efficiently drove her into the destructive habits that took her life. Joplin was born on January 19, 1943, in Port Arthur, Texas. From an early age, Joplin was ostracized. She was made fun of for her weight and skin issues, which buried her under a mountain of self-esteem troubles that would follow her for her whole life. In response, she tried to rebel against social expectations in her own way. She protested racism in 1950s Texas. She read The Beats, Kerouac, Burroughs, Ginsburg. She painted, sang in cafes, hitchhiked to California and back again to Texas. She enrolled at the University of Texas in 1962 and dropped out in 1963 after she was voted ugliest man on campus. And while she tried to be different and value the idea of a bohemian lifestyle, the taunts, the names, the difficulties with her own image stuck with her. Her incredibly low self-esteem made her instantly vulnerable to the 60s drug scene around San Francisco. In 1963, at 20 years old and performing in folk clubs to make a living, Joplin fell in fast with the underbelly of San Francisco. She shot up methadrine, and some speculate began using heroin as a way to buffer her comedown. Joplin's addiction evolved so quickly that her friends sent her back to Texas, where she continued the dance of taking on small-time work and dropping in and out of school while trying to maintain a certain level of sobriety. But this all changed in 1966, when at 23, she was invited to sing for a band called Big Brother and the Holding Company. The one problem, the band was located in San Francisco. A San Francisco that was in full swing with the hippie movement. The Kool-Aid at the Grateful Dead concerts was spiked with LSD. Record stores openly sold marijuana and psychedelics. Jefferson Airplane played, Allen Ginsberg wrote. It was virtually the worst place for a recovering addict like Janis Joplin. But she was a woman of talent, and once the industry recognizes talent, it's hard to let go. It's easy to see why Joplin chose this life. Forever she had longed to be accepted, to be happy, but the scars of her negative self-image followed her everywhere. Now there were people that idolized her, that needed her. Never mind that there was a certain emptiness inside her that remained unaddressed. So Joplin started to adopt a fabricated personality. Like Jim Morrison, she began to tell tall tales about her upbringing to appease those that thought of her as a rebel and an outcast. She said she was on the streets by the time she was 14, kicked out by her unfeeling parents. Instead of allowing the adoration of fans to boost her confidence in herself, she gave them somebody else to adore entirely. All those people could not possibly love the overweight girl from Port Arthur, Texas. The problem deepened when her new manager, Albert Grossman, along with the media, 
began to drive a wedge between her and Big Brother. They told her that her presence was more vibrant than the others, her work ethic more intense, her magnetism apparent. Grossman pushed her to go solo toward the end of 1968. This choice started the pathway to her demise. Without the security and support of the band she began her career with, Joplin's performances started to decrease in quality. She started to take more heroin and live with the rambunctious recklessness. The critics recognized the slip and began to fault her for ever leaving the band in the first place. It was like the bullies of her youth all over again, cruelly reminding her of her imperfections. For Janice, who so desperately wanted to be loved by anyone and everyone, this was an incredibly difficult setback, one she never fully overcame. On October 4, 1970, road manager John Cook found a 27-year-old Janis Joplin in her room at the Landmark Motor Hotel in Hollywood. She had died from a heroin overdose. Such were the hidden pains of the music industry. Joplin was pressured to leave her band behind for pursuit of her own star power, but what she failed to realize was that her band offered the type of familial support and love she craved. It allowed her to mitigate the fame and move past criticism. And the band can be incredibly pivotal in the life of a troubled musician. This brings us to part three, forming the band a task which ultimately brought about the strange demise of Brian Jones. Jones is a bit unique among the primary members of the 27 Club in that he was beginning to lose his fame and influence at the time of his death. That said, it is undeniable that he was instrumental in forming one of the century's most influential bands. As a teenager, he was a rebel at heart and extremely intelligent, However, after impregnating several women, including married ones, Jones quit school and decided to focus fully on music. He particularly liked jazz and blues. One of his favorite musicians was Robert Johnson, the first 27 Club member. After meeting Keith Richards and Mick Jagger in the early 1960s and forming the Rolling Stones, a name that Jones came up with after a Muddy Waters song title, Jones introduced Richards to Robert Johnson's unique guitar riffs. While this may seem like a simple gesture of sharing music between peers, it forever changed the course of music history. Jones and Richards spent hours fawning over Johnson, trying to reverse engineer his sound. Richards said, When I first heard it, I said to Brian, Who's that? Robert Johnson. I said, Yeah, but who's the other guy playing with him? because I was hearing two guitars, and it took me a long time to realize he was actually doing it all by himself. The pair came up with a signature method of performing they called guitar weaving, a way of playing that seamlessly linked the rhythm guitar and the lead guitar to the point that it was impossible to tell which was which. Musically, there was no denying Jones' talent and innovation. On various Rolling Stones records, he played the slide guitar, sitar, organ, marimba, recorder, harpsichord, saxophone, oboe, and harmonica. His versatility and love of music was exceptional. 
But Jones was deeply troubled. All of the Stones were frequent drug users, but Jones went above and beyond. Anita Pallenberg, who dated Jones from 1965 to 1967, said that in the years of their relationship, they took acid frequently. Unfortunately, the acid gave Jones horrible nightmares, a side effect that did not stop or slow down his intense drug use. This was the hard truth of the music industry of the 60s. Everyone was taking drugs, and everyone was so busy taking drugs that nobody was able to stop and look at the people that hurt the most. In the case of Brian Jones, the Rolling Stones only poked and prodded him in a way that made the problem worse. From the outset, Richards and Mick Jagger were discouraged by the fact that Jones would earn an extra five pounds for gigs. This was largely due to the fact that Jones handled the band's early managerial duties, but it planted a seed of resentment that began to grow. Then, one night in 1963, a lean, shaggy, blonde-haired 19-year-old walked into a club in Richmond, England, and felt a smile creep across his face as he watched the Stones perform their repertoire. This band had it. The teenager, who introduced himself to the six-piece Roland Stones group as Andrew Lug Oldham, made an immediate impact. Add a G. Rolling, not Rollin. It will roll off the tongue better. Axe the piano player. And what do you mean you don't have any songs? Keith and Mick, you are not to leave that room until you have a tried-and-true original. In terms of the Rolling Stones' success, bringing Oldham on as their manager altered the course of rock history. He was shrewd, deliberate, and had a fantastic musical ear. For Brian Jones, though, it marked a turning point in his tenure with the band. Because Richards and Jagger were encouraged to be the primary songwriters, the group drifted away from the type of blues Jones wanted to play. His behavior became erratic. He started to use drugs more often. He became more and more absentee from studio sessions. And the Stones, instead of seeking help, only ignored the issue and played on. Jones was a pivotal member of the band. His talent for creating unusual sounds was ever important to the Stones' success. And as we have seen already, talent often sweeps the artist's deepest problems under the rug. For years, the band continued to grow more volatile. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were arrested in February of 1967, forcing the group to travel to Morocco in an attempt to lay low. Anita Pallenberg, Jones's girlfriend of two years, Richards and Jones were traveling together, planning to rendezvous with the rest of the band in Marrakesh. They were driving through Toulouse, France, when Jones admitted he didn't feel well. He was soon so violently ill that he had to be hospitalized. Pallenberg and Richards continued on. And in days were locked in a passionate love affair. When Jones finally recovered and reached Morocco, it did not take long for him to uncover what had happened. But the cuckold received little sympathy from his bandmates. They shrugged and turned their backs as Pallenberg moved in with Keith Richards for the remainder of the vacation. Jones responded in the only way he knew how. He got high. 
High enough that he didn't notice when the band returned to England, Anita Pallenberg in tow, abandoning him in Morocco alone. This was the beginning of the unraveling of Brian Jones. A band was supposed to be an intimate bond, a group of people that see you at your most creative and emotionally vulnerable. But instead of lending a hand to Jones when he needed support, the Stones got high on acid and shook their heads from afar, judging his erratic behavior. A few months later, on May 10, 1967, Jones was arrested for possession of marijuana. He had a mental breakdown and was treated by Dr. Leonard Henry, who warned against jail time for Jones. Henry said he would go into psychotic depression as he could not possibly stand a stigma of a prison sentence, and he might well attempt to injure himself. But Jones' reckless behavior only continued. A year later, on May 21, 1968, Jones was again arrested for marijuana possession. It destroyed his chances of obtaining a work visa for the band's next tour in the United States. Another year of missed practices and drunken, drug-infused chaos forced the band's hand. On June 8, 1969, Jones heard a knock at his door. He opened it and found himself looking at the faces he had come to know so well over the past seven years. Charlie Watts, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. They asked him to sit down. Jagger tried to break the news lightly. It's just that they needed a guitarist who knew all the new songs. Jones had been skipping out on all the studio sessions. Richards did not want to beat around the bush. He told Jones that he was out. Jones only nodded as they told him about the compensation he'd continue to receive. Then, the three bandmates stood up to leave their founder behind. Richards hesitated before he left, turned to Jones and said, you'll get your act together, man. Less than a month later, on July 3rd, 1969, Jones' body was found at the bottom of his swimming pool at his home in Hartfield, East Sussex. A coroner found that his inflated organs showed an excess consumption of drugs and alcohol. We'll continue our progress through the life of the troubled musician after this. The story of Brian Jones is a sort of warning about the dangers of relationships in a creative but chaotic industry like music. This type of toxicity is not only seen within bands, but in friendships, families, and love affairs. Part four of our discussion is about the last of these, love. For Amy Winehouse, this relationship came in the form of a thin, pale man covered in tattoos. He nonchalantly entered a small bar in Camden, London, called The Good Mixer. It was 2005, nearly two years after the release of Amy's critically acclaimed debut album, Frank. Though she was reaping the benefits of a strong beginning to her singing career, she was hit with a crushing stint of writer's block which she drowned in daily visits to The Good Mixer, where she spent hours drinking and idly strumming a guitar. Winehouse had little else to do but drink the days away. That is, until she laid eyes on Blake Fielder Civil in 2005. 
The two felt an instant attraction that soon grew into a volatile relationship. Over the next year or so, Amy and Blake took drugs, cheated on each other, broke up, got back together, and broke up again when Amy started seeing someone else. The tumultuous relationship certainly did not help Amy's well-being, but it did unlock something in her that had been tucked away. For the first time in several years, she started to write songs. This brings up an interesting paradox. It seems that in certain cases, the same thing that stirs up these artists' deep internal struggles and causes addiction and other mental illnesses also unlocks some of their most powerful creative energy. This energy is so strong and draining that unless the artist finds an outlet, it threatens to consume them. And when Amy channeled this energy, her genius erupted in a recording studio in New York City. On October 27th, 2006, Back to Black came out and took the world by storm. Critics praised the album, hailing Winehouse for pouring so much honesty, soul, and emotion in a single work. Back to Black truly shed light on the deep pain Winehouse felt on a daily basis. Her struggle between addiction and health, her stubborn desire for freedom, the intimacy and reluctant acknowledgement of a relationship crumbling to pieces. Her honesty leaked over the speakers, and the simple retro feel derived from the 1950s and 60s paved the way for a new generation of popular music. But even though she shared her turmoil and destruction with the world, it still lingered within her. Perhaps inevitably, Amy and Blake's spheres of chaos began to gravitate toward one another again. They drank, they made love, they snorted crack cocaine. And eventually, Blake introduced Amy to heroin. After her death, he would later lament this decision, saying, I made the biggest mistake of my life by taking heroin in front of her. I introduced her to heroin, crack cocaine, and self-harming. The torrent of drug use, fueled by her immensely passionate and irresistible love affair, began to snowball out of control. At first, the media found her inebriated antics amusing. They laughed as Amy ridiculed other pop stars, going as far as to insult Simon Fuller, whose company first signed her. Then, after the couple secretly eloped in Miami in May of 2007, things took a much darker turn. In a June interview with Spin magazine, Winehouse began ranting obscenities. She lamented that she cared little for herself. She wasn't a role model. She did not ask for the fame bestowed upon her. Then when posing for a photograph with a broken shard of mirror, Amy turned the glass on herself and carved the words, I love Blake, into her stomach. Amy spent most of the summer in and out of rehab for crack and heroin. Then, in August of 2007, at around 2.30 in the morning, hotel guests heard a ruckus fight coming from one of the hotel's most expensive suites. Suddenly, a 23-year-old Amy Winehouse burst out of the room. She looked off, tattered and delirious, but she ran toward the elevator with a purpose. Hot on her heels was a bloodied and ravenous 24-year-old man, Blake Fielder Civil. Amy tore outside into the warm London night, afraid, 
delusional, panicked. She ran from her husband at full tilt, straight in front of an oncoming car. The car pulled to a stop. Help me, she said to the group of girls inside. Please help me. They opened the door and let her in, quickly taking note of her condition. Her neck was badly bruised. Her arms were covered in blood that dripped down on her ballerina shoes. It was now 3 a.m. Blake, with two nasty gashes that dripped down his cheeks, wandered the streets in a daze, calling out for his estranged wife. By 4 a.m., the couple was seen walking hand in hand, sharing a laugh with their wounds on full display. The marriage between Amy and Blake ended officially in 2009, two years after this incident. But love for them, like so many other substances, was an addiction. They were fulfilled by each other. It was a persistent and irresistible longing, a desperation. It is a sad tragedy of fate that links this addiction to Amy Winehouse's soulful, enriched music. Perhaps it was that one could not exist without the other. Perhaps a talent such as hers, an ability to put honesty and her deepest emotions into art, is more of a curse than a gift. Amy Winehouse died two years after her divorce on July 23, 2011, from alcohol intoxication, sadly leaving the world with only two albums to her name. But even that was enough to solidify her place as one of the greatest musicians of the new century. Something our next musician also accomplished within a relatively small window of time. But his addiction first and foremost was to the guitar. And Jimi Hendrix could play the crap out of a guitar. Hendrix is the focus of part five of our series, Burnout. But unlike most of the 27 club's members, Jimi Hendrix did not necessarily burn out from years of substance abuse, but instead from music abuse. From the time he was 15 years old, Hendrix would rarely go anywhere without a guitar. It didn't help him much until one day in 1966, when a beautiful 20-year-old model walked into the Cheetah Club in New York City. Up on stage was a band, a band like any other, except for a lean and determined backup guitarist. The model, a girl named Linda, noticed him immediately because he was playing his right-handed guitar upside down with his left hand. Linda had been around music, but she had never seen anything like this before. The man's fingers danced. They were emotional and expressive, evoking noises no one else could ever or would ever recreate. After the show, she introduced herself. He said his name was Jimmy. She said that Jimmy ought to meet her boyfriend, Keith. Keith? Yeah, Keith Richards. He plays the guitar, too. Richards took to Hendrix quickly. He introduced him to several managers, and the ex-bassist of the Animals, Chaz Chandler, took the young guitarist under his wing. Chandler took Hendrix to London, and Hendrix took London by storm. His practice and dedication ripped out onto the stage with fury. He dazzled audiences by playing complicated riffs with his teeth or with his guitar behind his back. He dressed brightly. He lit things on fire. 
He had a burning charisma that radiated off the stage and across the United Kingdom. And when he caused a sensation at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, his explosive reputation rippled across the United States as well. Hendrix was the very definition of an overnight sensation. Between 1967 and 1970, the young musician asserted himself as the best rock and roll guitar player in history. His style was unique and funky. His swagger was magnetic. But by the time Jimi Hendrix was 27, he was ready to switch his focus from touring to writing new music, which was why he signed on when his manager, Michael Jeffrey, suggested he build a state-of-the-art studio, which would eventually come to be known as Electric Lady Studios. The only problem was they needed money. And to make money, Hendrix needed to tour. But Hendrix had spent the better part of three years on the road. Since 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience had played 442 shows. He was totally and utterly exhausted. The trials of such a life on the road are taxing. And for Hendrix, it was no different. He was tired of playing the same old songs, tired of fans booing if he tried new ones, tired of the new hotel rooms and new cities, not to mention fans were upset with what they deemed the music industry's exploitation of the public. They wanted free shows, not to have to pay the capitalists for their music. They would frequently go so far as to riot at concerts in protest. Hendrix told Jeffrey he just wanted to take some time and write new songs. Jeffrey patted him on the shoulder, just one more tour. Then he could write as many songs as he wanted. The Cry of Love tour started on April 25, 1970. By all accounts, every show was a coin flip. Sometimes Jimmy was inebriated to the point of poor performances or wasn't even able to get on stage. Hendrix didn't abuse drugs quite as dramatically as some of the other members of the 27 Club, but he was known to freely dabble like the rest of the rock and roll scene. He partied often, slept around, drank heavily, took LSD and heroin. After all, he was on the road. After all, the music industry does its best to push you to the limits. In August 1970, the tour headed across the seas to Europe for the Isle of Wight Festival, where Hendrix and his band performed on the 31st. Then it was Stockholm, Gothenburg, Aarhus, Copenhagen, Berlin, and finally a performance at the Love and Peace Festival in Feymarn, Germany. On this segment of the trip, Hendrix lamented the toll it was taking. He eerily told an interviewer that he sacrificed part of his soul every night that he played and that he was not sure he would live to be 28 years old. The show in Feymarn, Germany on September 6, 1970, went poorly. The weather was bad. The crowd was unruly. They booed Hendrix. He snapped back that if they were going to boo, they better do it in key. It would turn out to be his last live performance ever. The band's bassist and Jimmy's longtime friend, Brian Cox, fell ill, and the rest of the tour was canceled. Jimmy traveled to London, where he stayed at the Cumberland Hotel 
with a 25-year-old German woman named Monica Dannemann. They drank. They partied. Then, on the morning of September 18, 1970, Monica woke up and a 27-year-old Jimmy did not. He had apparently taken as many as nine of Monica's sleeping pills, a barbiturate called Vesperax. Was it intentional? No one knows, and likely no one will. Because Monica gave a series of varying frantic accounts of what had happened the night before, nobody really knows exactly what happened. But we can understand that in his last days, an exhausted Jimi Hendrix was slowing down and becoming increasingly careless. Something brought about by the things he was forced to do, not the things he chose to do. Part six in our exploration of the 27 Club is the thing that connects them all. Death. More specifically, a young death. Kurt Cobain perhaps nailed a truth on the head about the 27 Club in some of the last words of his suicide note. He wrote, I don't have the passion anymore. And so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Even from a young age, Cobain had an uncomfortable relationship with suicide. His great-grandfather stabbed himself in a mental hospital, and two of his great-uncles committed suicide when he was still a toddler. Cobain was even convinced that his uncle Burl did so in response to Jim Morrison's death. The obsession deepened in 1984 when a 17-year-old Kurt made a home movie called Kurt Commits Bloody Suicide, complete with a montage of Kurt stabbing and cutting himself with a fake knife. It was chilling and prophetic, but it also highlighted that even as a teenager, Kurt was preoccupied with his own mortality. Cobain's brief time in the music industry encompasses a lot of the pains of the other 27 Club members. He did heroin. He felt extreme bouts of loneliness. He both simultaneously desired and resented his fame. His life growing up was difficult and always hung over him. Cobain was trapped between worlds his entire life. His parents divorced when he was young, and he was pulled between his mother and father. He found the straight life deplorable, but constantly yearned for the stable family he never had. He was a shy introvert, but an angry, passionate performer on stage. In 1987, he and his friend Krist Novoselic decided to start a band. The name Nirvana came to him while watching a Buddhist documentary. It highlighted the possibility that one could escape the endless cycle of reincarnation. One could live in a paradise of nothing. This sounded like bliss to Kurt. In many ways, Kurt Cobain's life mirrored the life of Amy Winehouse, but also had a stronger turbulence to it. For one, the success of Nirvana's 1991 album, Nevermind, catapulted the band to the very top of the music world, even supplanting Michael Jackson on the U.S. Billboard 200. Cobain was dubbed a pseudo-prophet of Generation X. He lambasted the baby boomers for squandering the foundations of revolution that had been built on the music of Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, the Rolling Stones, and Janis Joplin. But much like Winehouse, he too found himself in an incredibly turbulent relationship 
when he started dating Courtney Love in 1991. The pair used heroin together. They had a daughter. Kurt performed all over the world. He grew more distant, more resentful of his fame. He and Courtney made a suicide pact. He started collecting guns. He bought a house. He overdosed multiple times on heroin in the early 90s. But Cobain's death was fated not to be an accident. Sure, the band noticed, but there was little they could do. It seemed Kurt had long ago chosen death as his companion. So on April 5th, 1994, in a quiet, drug-free suburb of Seattle, a 27-year-old Kurt Cobain stuffed himself with a fatal dose of Valium and heroin and scribbled down a suicide note. Then he stuck a 20-gauge shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. When Kurt's mother, Wendy, heard the news, she said, Now he's gone and joined that stupid club. I told him not to join that stupid club. She was referencing Morrison, Joplin, Hendricks, and Jones. The media took the quotation and ran with it. And thus, the myth of the 27 Club was born. But if we want to go back to the real origin of the 27 Club, we must go back much further in time, to the 1930s in Mississippi, where a man with a guitar was headed to make a deal with the devil. Which brings us to part seven, the afterlife. Not much is known about Robert Johnson, but one thing can be said of him. He is a legend. In fact, he borders on mythical. The stories about him swirl with inconsistencies and conflicting documentation. But the one repeated most often is the story about how he learned the guitar. By all accounts, Robert Johnson was desperate to play the blues. The only problem was he was terrible. He was laughed at and ridiculed in his hometown of Hazelhurst, enough so that he left town with only his guitar on him. Sometime later, Johnson came to a crossroads just before midnight. He felt the air shift and thicken until it was uncomfortably hot. His forehead beaded with sweat as he watched a large man emerge from the shadows. The man flagged Johnson down and told him he had a nice guitar. You know, the man said, for a small price, I can tune that for you. Johnson's hands shook as he handed over his most precious possession. The shadowy figure turned the knobs this way and that, strumming each string a single time. Then he handed the guitar back. The man turned to walk away, but Johnson called after him. Wait, what was the price? The shadowed figure waited for a moment before he stretched his mouth and revealed a row of unnaturally white, demented teeth. Then the man spun on his heels and left Johnson at the crossroads. Johnson looked at the guitar, and without quite understanding what he was doing, he picked it up to play a song. He was surprised to find his fingers dance across the strings, plucking out a vivacious and original tune. Johnson thought about running the man down, but instead, he packed his guitar away and hurried back to his hometown. He had music to play. The myth of Robert Johnson trading his soul to the devil at the crossroads has survived nearly 100 years. 
Many obviously believe it to be fake, but there is some truth to it. Sunhouse, a famous Southern blues player from the 1930s, insists that Robert Johnson was a horrible musician. But then, after a relatively short disappearance, he returned with more talent than anyone. There are different theories as to what really happened. Some believe Johnson's wife died in childbirth, and he went on a pilgrimage to mourn and learn the blues. Others think there was more than one Robert Johnson playing music in the area, and the man who was exiled from his hometown wasn't the same man who returned a musical genius. What we do have for certain are some recordings and a death certificate showing Robert Johnson's death at 27 years of age. The recordings became some of the most important in music history. They influenced the likes of Eric Clapton, Robert Plant, Keith Richards, Brian Jones, Fleetwood Mac, and Bob Dylan. His legacy and legend persist, which is perhaps the most important takeaway from looking at the 27 Club. Though these musicians all died young, their words and their art live on. The music industry is rife with mystique, with questions of what if, with outlandish stories and idolization. The current generation always feeds the next. There is something immortal about it, something divine. Perhaps that is why such volatile personalities are drawn in. They are the ones that know they are a kind of sacrifice to that divine spirit. Throughout the next nine weeks, we'll continue to excavate the most charged elements of the music industry. Because in many ways, the darkest sides of music do not just survive, they thrive, revealing some of the deepest and most frightful sides of humanity. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to explore the dark side of jazz. The devil wasn't the only danger for blues stars like Robert Johnson. Early jazz clubs were filled with drugs, cons, racial stigma, and organized crime. You can find all of ParCast shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Drew Cole, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>